How do we know what is true? That's the question that we're dealing with today. How do we know what is true? Now, the assumption behind this question is significant. The, uh, the question assumes that some things are true and some are not. And some of you here today may go, well, I don't think there is such a thing as truth. It's a narrow kind of view of reality that you think that there's something that is truth. You might be sitting there, you might be going, I think that people make up their own truth. As long as it's true for you, it doesn't have to be true for everyone else. And if you're, in, uh, if you're kind of thinking that or you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, I know some people who think like that, you've actually proved my point. Because when you say that I don't think there is such a thing as truth, you're not just saying what's true for you, you're actually saying something that's true for everybody, right? You with me? It fails its own test. The, the statement that people make up their own truth is not a made-up truth that is applicable to one person. It's a truth that you think is true for everyone. It's a true statement. You can't actually get away from it. I remember uh, listening to uh, Ravi Zacharias talk about uh, people who would kind of hammer him about the Eastern view of truth that uh, Western kind of view of truth is either or and the Eastern view of truth is both and and he said he was, he was born in India and he, was, he grew up in India he said even in India it's either the bus or me not me and the bus <laughs> on the road you get the point? Like you just can't get away from the objective reality that th- some things are true and some things aren't I mean think for example about the way that we operate no one wants to get in a lift that's been designed by someone whose truth is just true for them. Do they? Is anyone with me? Like you don't, right? Because that could be the end of your life. You could be one of those cartoon characters that's kind of compressed and looks like an accordion. You think about engineering, you think about cars. Most of you, I would assume almost all of you came in cars today. Some things just are and some things aren't. Think about medicine. Some things are right and some things are not. So truth, in a sense, it does exist. Objective truth does exist and you can't get away from it. In fact, just about everyone who argues against objective truth needs to use it to argue against it. You you just can't get away from it. Now here's the qualifier and there is a significant qualifier here at this point and the qualifier is this. No one here has a comprehensive view of what's objectively true. Everyone here has a subjective grasp of objective truth. Everyone here is affected by their upbringing, their context, their education. And just a tip for you, smarter academically doesn't always mean smarter in terms of wisdom. We're all kind of affected by our culture, we're affected by our desires. So let me throw a summary statement your way. Objective truth exists but humans can only have a subjective grasp on objective truth. Is that okay? You guys okay so far? You look like someone slapped you with a dead fish, some of you, but that's okay. Please don't be insulted by that uh, that statement. Just because you have a limited view of truth doesn't mean that you can't know truth. It doesn't logically follow that you can't know truth truth uh, we just we do this all the time we have a limited view of truth and we operate on this limited view of truth uh, regularly every single day and someone some of you might go okay so I've only got a slice of truth 
How big is my slice? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how big your slice is. I don't know how big my slice is. We just have a grasp on truth, but we just don't know how much uh, we actually have. So it, coming back to the question that we started with, how do we, how do we know what is true? Now, that's a good question, isn't it? I mean, if some things are true and some things aren't, it's a good question to ask, how do we know what is true? Now, the philosophical discipline that, uh, that kind of probes into this area of how do we know what is true and how do we arrive at truth is called epistemology. All right? And generally, there's been five different ways that humans have attacked this whole notion about how do we know what's true. Let me give you the first one. The first one is by the senses. All right? If you've ever heard the... Um, the, the concept of empiricism, all right? So basically we learn what is true by seeing, hearing, smelling, feeling and tasting. Another word for all that? Anyone like to have a punt? Starts with S. I didn't hear any of that. Let me throw it out. Science, all right? That's, that's really, sorry, it's, it's always difficult when you ask people to throw in and then you say something different than what they throw in. You just go, yeah, that's really good. Thanks for throwing in, but that... <laughs> You didn't guess what the teacher was thinking, so I'm sorry. Um, it's, it's the science, right? The sciences. What we can see, taste, hear, smell, feel, that's one way for actually getting knowledge or finding out what truth is. Here's another one, is authority, okay? Our, our culture does this hugely. In fact, if you had to investigate every single thing that you receive as truth, you wouldn't do much in your life. Everyone got up this morning and you did things and you did things based on authority. You thought the people who made your car have got authority that it's actually going to work and not kill you. Uh, you go to school and what do you have at school? You have uh, textbooks in the classroom. What are textbooks? Well, textbooks are, are an authority. You, you read the, the newspaper, you read an online kind of news article about the latest study that's happened and you just go, wow, look at that. That's actually true because there was a study that happened that showed that that is true. You see, you don't always actually go and investigate everything to work out whether it's true. A lot of the times what we actually do is we go with authority. Now, the, the critical part about the authority that you go with is the authority you go with is only as good as the assumptions that underlie the authority that's proclaiming something. Okay, so back in 2015, <laughs> this was fascinating. Now, this needs to be nuanced. So don't hear this as a kind of, I'm, I'm trashing psychology, right? Because I'm just not with saying this, but... It just makes the point really well. In 2015, a study was undertaken to take 100 top psychological research um, projects and see if they could be repeated, which is kind of the test of science, right, to see if they could be repeated. And the, this research, this high-end research project actually came out and said 50% of psychological kind of research projects actually can't be repeated. Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. But that, that should actually kind of give you a little bit of a heads up that there's something else that's actually going on in there, all right? And so you should be, and I think you should do this, you can't do this exhaustively, but it's good, I think, just to have a, a healthy degree of scepticism. When someone says science says this or research says this, it's like, please just give me a few more of the details here. Um, give me a few more of the details. I mean, the more research I do, the more I probably... I don't dismiss research because I think research is really helpful and really important. 
but there's a whole bunch of unanswered questions. And so I tend not to receive research and just listen to it blindly. Because sometimes, I'll tell you this, in research, um, it's not just the questions you ask, it's the questions that you don't ask. Like if God's real and he exists, to run a research, for example, in psychology that totally leaves God out of the picture, leaves out a massive reality that exists in the world. Now it doesn't mean that you can't actually get to some truth by doing that research, but it does mean at some level it's going to be skewed a little bit because it's not considering the big, big, big things. Does that, does that make sense? All right, here's another way that we uh, can uh, actually uh, lay hold of knowledge and, uh, and it's by reason, by argument, by rationalism. So uh, some things you just can't do with the senses. So uh, who loves algebra? It's just like, no one. Okay. See if you can follow this with me, right? This is a way of arriving at truth without actually having to touch and feel it because you can't actually do that with this, right? If X is equal to Y and Y is equal to Z, then X is equal to Z. True? Yeah. But you didn't see it, feel it, touch it or taste it. And if you did, we need to talk. (laughs) All right? Forms of logic um, kind of play into this one. So you can get there through reason. Here's another one. A little bit out of vogue this one at the moment and that's revelation. So general revelation, knowledge revealed to everyone and specific revelation uh, in the biblical sense will be the Bible itself. So what revelation is, is like that's another way of actually working out what the truth is. A transcendent spiritual reality breaks into the natural order and tells you the way that things are. And theology, by the way, used to actually be called the coin of the sciences. That's what it was called. Here's the last one. Some of you going, yes, this is my one. Intuition. You ever had a moment where it's like you've got a flash of insight or you felt uneasy about something, you're uncertain about something, you kind of knew the answer before you worked out how to get it? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It actually is a genuine way that you arrive at truth. It's through intuition. You know, it's it's a knowledge of something based on a strong conviction that you have a knowledge of something. That's really what it is. So those are the five kind of rough ways historically that people have worked out what the truth is. Now, here's my question for you. Which one do you think our culture focuses on, I think, almost exclusively? The senses, right? Who, Who actually said the senses? Yeah, the senses. Science. Now, straight off the bat, you, you can actually say to our culture, and I think this has been done in an academic context, it's just like you have actually just written off four other areas of ways of, of arriving at truth that have been generally accepted across human history. So our culture actually has a very, very narrow view of how you arrive at the truth, and it's just through the sciences. Now, I could ask you this question, which one of these do you think is the best one? And you might say all of them. <laughs> and you might be right in one sense because I think they all kind of interplay together. But the, uh, the reality of our culture is that we've drifted away from a broader view of epistemology and we've ended up in science. And it's, you can know a lot of stuff and a lot of really, really good stuff with science. But it's a bit like a dishwasher. 
going back to an analogy I used, a uh, metaphor I used last week, it's a bit like a dishwasher. Now, it's, I've titled this slide The Battle of the Sexes, right? So you get a new dishwasher at home. What's the dude going to do most of the time in terms of working out how to use it? Go straight to it, start pressing buttons, connect stuff up, and just kind of, it's like, let's just get this sucker going and we can work out what's going on, okay? The uh, females generally are probably, arguably, more inclined to read the instructions and get a sense of what they're supposed to do with it. Now, dial back a little bit with me and just go, what if you actually received a dishwasher in your house and you had to actually work out how to use it and you'd never seen or heard of a dishwasher ever before, uh, ever? In the history of humanity, a dishwasher has never existed. All of a sudden, it lobs up in your house. Could you work out how to use it and what it was for by trial and error and just using it? Could you? Yeah, you could. I reckon you probably could. It would take you a while and it'd probably be a bit messy, all right? And sometimes you'd probably put detergent from your sink into it and you'd fill your house up with bubbles and <laughs> some of you going, yeah, I've done that before. You could do that. A far more effective way of working out what this thing is and how to use it is to read the manual, right? Because the people who made it and constructed it can give you clearer, more direct um, information than just trial and error. And I guess I hold those two up to you as an example of the comparison between science and religion, sorry, revelation, I should say, in terms of a way of accessing knowledge and truth. You can find out a whole bunch of stuff about reality by doing science, but man, how much more powerfully are you understanding reality when you've got the person who made stuff actually telling you about it and, and about himself and about how that works? Another classic example is um, when you're lost in the car. I mean, how many marital breakups have been saved by GPS devices? Because the, the, the man's going, yeah, we'll just keep driving. We'll find a road somewhere that goes back to Brisbane, even though we're in Western Australia. And the, and the wife, in a sense, a lot of the time is just going, we should just ask someone. And so I get someone who knows what's going on here to uh, inform what we're doing here. In Revelation is a much more reliable source for truth than science alone or empiricism. But that leads us to the question as to whether God has spoken and who did he speak through. So worldwide, we've got the Torah, the Bible, the Quran, the Buddhist scriptures, the Book of Mormon. It begs the question, doesn't it? Which one is the real deal? How do we know that God actually spoke it? What's the evidence for it? Now, we don't have time for an evaluation of every one. And you might remember last week that uh, I think you just can't. I mean, we're, we're talking about millions of gods in the world. Remember I said that last week, there's about 30 plus million gods in Hinduism and if you, uh, you, you don't actually establish the truthfulness of something by disproving all the other ones. You establish the truthfulness of something by looking at it and seeing how it stands on its own merits. So I want to spend the rest of this message today actually looking at the Bible. What does the Bible actually say about itself? Now, 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. 
the scriptures tell you about themselves that God was the one that superintended the writing of the scripture so that human authors using their own styles, personalities, resources, wrote down exactly word for word what God intended them to write in the originals. And if you look at the New Testament, much of the New Testament is either an eyewitness account or is written by those who were eyewitnesses. Check this out from 2 Peter 1. Peter says this, the disciple of Jesus, he said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory... This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Listen to this. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, you know where this leaves you? It leaves you with two options. Everyone doesn't matter whether you go to church normally or not, you've got two options. Either the Bible is a book given by God to men, to people, to humanity, or the Bible is a book by people about God. You have to go either way. Now, let me ask you this question. If you are making up a religion, would you make Christianity up the way that the Bible makes it up? Would you include what's in the Bible? Now, I reckon that's a good question, all right? Deny self, death to self, no sex before marriage, not not even thinking about it before marriage. Like, seriously, we could just go on and on, right? Like, if you're making the thing up and it was the whole thing was a G up, you wouldn't actually make up a whole bunch of the stuff that's in there. I mean, you wouldn't make up stuff about the characters in the Bible either. I think it was my, I think it was my pop who, uh, when he became a Christian, he started reading the Bible. He said to my dad, who's a, who's a pastor, he said, man, these guys are all crooks. They're all bad people in here. <laughs> and it is, isn't it? Like it's, full with, it's, it's filled with people who have failed and, con- and continue to fail in a sense. It's not like these heroes in there. Even the best heroes fail badly. Like, if you're making it up, would you do that? Would you set that up? I doubt it. But let me get into some, uh, a few kind of evidential kind of things. Uh, what evidence is there that God was involved in writing the Bible? I want to look at a couple of pieces of evidence. Uh, some of you might be familiar with these. Here's the first one. The Bible's unique, all right? And this is not like a teenager kind of unique where they say everyone's unique, just like everyone else. You know, have you ever noticed that with teenagers? It's like they've got to buy their own clothes, but all their clothes look the same as each other. It's like, I want to be original. Yes, okay, well, if you were original, you probably wouldn't fit in. Sorry, teenagers. Um, here's the thing. The Bible is unique. The Bible is written over 1,500 years. No uh, religious book has been written over that time span. Okay, one and a half thousand years. Australia's been around for 200 in the modern since one and a half thousand years this book gets written over written over 40 generations i mean think about the diversity of the origins of the bible right it's written by kings peasants philosophers fishermen poets statesmen scholars 
Moses was a political leader, Peter was a fisherman, Amos was a herdsman, Joshua was a military general, Nehemiah was a cupbearer, Daniel was a prime minister, Luke was a doctor, Solomon was a king, Matthew was a tax collector, Paul was a rabbi. I mean, just think about the diversity of people contributing to this thing. I mean, think about the writing conditions that this book was written in, in dungeons, battlefields, the wilderness, jails, palaces... Think about the diversity in the scriptures of controversial topics. Like, I mean, th- there are so many controversial topics in the Bible and yet we actually find a profound unity in the Bible. We find a, a plan woven through the entire Bible that no individual writer understood completely. I mean, we've got the whole deal there, right? But they didn't know that. They were just doing their little piece. They didn't know where it was going to end. And each person each writer there actually added a little piece to the puzzle which when assembled showed God's overall plan about what he was doing I mean it's a unique unique book and to push it even a little bit further here there are a whole bunch of spin-out biblical prophecies that point to the supernatural origin of the Bible it's like how did the Bible actually know that that was going to happen predictions of the future that are precise detailed and accurate let me give you an example of one like there's heaps of them we just don't have time today this one is one of the ones i love the most and it's a prophecy in ezekiel about the uh the city of tyre ezekiel 26 says they'll plunder your riches and loot your merchandise they'll break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses your stones and timber and soil they will cast into the midst of the waters for thus says the lord god when i make you a city laid waste like the cities that are not inhabited when I bring up the deep over you and the great waters cover you, then I'll make you go down with those who go down to the pit. To the people of old, and I'll make you to dwell in the world below, among ruins of old, um, from of old, with those who go down to the pit, so that you will not be inhabited. But I'll set beauty in the land of the living. Now, you can read the rest of Ezekiel 26, right? God says, I'm going to scrape your city off, and it's going to be left a bare rock, and I'm going to throw you in the sea. Pretty specific stuff, right? There's a whole bunch of nations who are going to come up against you. So do you know what actually happens to the city of Tyre? A whole bunch of nations come up against it. Nebuchadnezzar's one of them. And Ezekiel 26 says he was one of the ones that were going to hook into Tyre. And then in the end, the, uh, the final death knell for the city of Tyre. And you can go and research this online because it's all out there. It was around about 300 BC, uh, roughly, where Alexander the Great came up against the city of Tyre. And the city of Tyre, the people in the city of Tyre were going to cop a beating. So you know what they did? Is they got, um, they ducked across to an island just off the coast. Because Alexander the Great didn't actually have a navy, I don't think, at that point in time. And so do you know what Alexander the Great did to get to the island off the coast? He got the whole city and made a land bridge across to the island and threw it in the ocean. That's what he did. You know, and I've read a, a report that actually says that fishermen actually had been drying nets on the bare rock left over from Tyre. All right, like a really specific prophecy, well in advance, like hundreds of years in advance, that's actually saying this whole thing's going to get scraped off, thrown in the ocean, and that's exactly what happens. I think, I think that's amazing. And there's lots and lots of prophecies like that. Like, how does the Bible know? I think the Bible knows because God's the one who's inspiring it. Now, we could go on to more and more of those. But what I want to do at this point is I want to transition to Jesus. 
because Jesus and the evidence for Jesus is absolutely stunning. And I think you can do all this stuff with kind of prophetic stuff, and I think that's helpful, but Jesus is kind of the linchpin for everything. Does anyone know what a linchpin is? What is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's often the pin that holds the wheel on an, on an axle. Like you pull that one out and the thing just falls off, right? Everything falls apart um, if the linchpin's not there. And I want to say to you that the evidence for Jesus and who he is and what he did is stunning. Look at this in Hebrews 1 verse 1 to 4. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Now, this is not the same thing as what I was saying before with the dishwasher, right? Because the prophets were speaking God's word. But can you see here with Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews is going, you really need to notice Jesus. Because now it's not just someone who's a messenger communicating the message to you. It's the message himself has now come down. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's the linchpin, all right? Before we go any further, I forgot to mention this at the start. Feel free, I'm giving you permission to use your phone in church. You've got a question along the way, we're going to have a Q&A at the end. Feel free to text it in, the uh, numbers on the bottom of every single screen. It's going to spam you for the rest of the rest of the message. So if you've got a question, you can just send that in and I'll have a crack at answering that uh, at the end. So uh, if you've got one sitting there already, feel free to send that through and we'll catch up with that at the end. So do you... I'm pretty excited about this stuff. Some of you are going, history, man, I'm just not excited. You know, I used to say to students at school all the time, just don't do history, man, it's got no future. Uh, it's a really bad joke. Um, look, here's the thing, scholars, scholars count between 191 and 332 predictions and prophecies about Jesus. So we could do all these other kind of prophecies, but the lion's share of prophecies are about this person called Jesus who's going to show up. So let's just have a, we'll have a look at a couple of them, all right? We're not going through 332 this morning, but let me give you a couple. Here's the first one. Um, Jesus' entering into history was prophesied. It was prophesied in Isaiah 9 verse 1 that Jesus' ministry was going to be in Galilee. And surprise, surprise, we find out in Matthew, Jesus spent a fair bit of time in Galilee. In fact, the Gospel of Mark records most of the stuff that he did in Galilee, And you just go, coincidence? Okay, that's one. I mean, we could just keep going, right? Here's another one. Um, In Zechariah 9, it actually, uh, there's a prophecy there well before Jesus shows up on the scene that says he's going to come into the city on a donkey, on the cult, the foal of a donkey. And then surprise, surprise, in Matthew 21, 1 to 3, we find Jesus in the triumphal entry sending his disciples off to get a donkey, the cult of a donkey to ride on into the city. And this one, Malachi 3 verse 1, the prophecy there is, Behold, I send my messenger and he'll prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
Now, Jesus visited the temple. Matthew 21. Now, some of you go, so? He visited the temple. Well, in 70 AD, the temple got destroyed and knocked down. Like, you can't visit the temple anymore in the way that Jesus visited the temple. So there's a very unique thing that's actually gone on there. And if you go to Isaiah 53, it's probably one of the more stunning examples of specific prophecy about Jesus. I mean, listen to this, this bit. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. I mean, if that's not Easter and Jesus dying on the cross, I don't know what is. I mean, that just gets so specific there, doesn't it? So we've got an abundance of prophecies that we know happened before Jesus showed up on the scene. They actually say, yep, this is who he is. He's going to show up and this is what he's going to do. What else have we got? Well, the other things that we've got is we've got uh, historians recording details of Jesus' life. Now, there's an unfair thing that goes on in terms of historical criticism, especially with the Bible, and that's this, that you can't trust Christian sources, you can only trust sources that are not Christian, which is not fair. And that's what you actually find over and over and over and over again with the Bible, as if historians generally would apply the same historical principles to the Scriptures to the Gospels, to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, as they apply to other documents in antiquity, we wouldn't be having that many fights or arguments about whether it's true. But they don't always do that. But anyway, what I want to give you is just a couple of quotes for some, for some people who were not in the Christian team about stuff that actually happened and stuff about Jesus, right? Because Jesus is not this mysterious, mythical, kind of fictional figure that someone made up. He's the real deal. I mean, pretty much no one says... Jesus didn't live. This is from Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman historian that lived uh, roughly 56 to 120 AD. Listen to what he said. He said, Therefore, to squelch the rumour, Nero created scapegoats and subjected to the most refined tortures those whom the common people called Christians, hated for their abominable crimes. Their name comes from Christ, who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed by the procurator Pontius Pilate, suppressed for the moment the deadly superstition break out again, not only in Judea, the land which originated this evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all sorts of horrendous and shameful practices from every part of the world converge and are fervently cultivated. Can you see there's a bit of a rhythm in what Tacitus says about this Christianity thing and about this person Christ. I mean, he's saying, yeah, Jesus was crucified on a cross. And this one here from uh, Josephus. Now, this one's a bit contested because uh, there's a lot of debate about this because they think that Josephus is uh, way too warm toward Jesus than what he should be, given that he's a Jew. So he lived about 37 to 100 AD. Listen to what he writes. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among, amongst us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. 
On the third day he appeared to them restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvellous things about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Now, you can go and uh, Google Josephus and you can find this. There's heaps of debate, but even if you take out the pieces where he's too warm, which a lot of people do, you still have a striking statement about the reliability of the story that we've got about Jesus and how it kind of corroborates with, um, with the Gospels. Doing okay? Here's where we're going now. We actually have eyewitness records. And those eyewitness records, you heard it in 2 Peter 1 before, are the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And some of those eyewitnesses went on and wrote uh, other books of the New Testament. Now let me give you some conservative kind of dating uh, of the Gospels about when they were actually written. You can see that up on the screen there. You can see that uh, they estimate that Matthew, who was a disciple, uh, wrote his Gospel in the early 60s to 80s. That Mark, who was a sidekick of Peter, the disciple Peter, wrote his in the late 50s to the 60s. That Luke, who was a sidekick of Paul, wrote his in the 60s to the 80s. And John, the disciple, wrote his in the mid-60s uh, to somewhere near 100. These are actually the earliest accounts, eyewitness accounts, that we've got of Jesus and what Jesus did. They just are. Now, Jesus was crucified around about 30 AD. Some of you go, oh, it's 20 years between 30 AD and 50 AD when Mark's starting to put something down. There's a couple of things you need to remember they didn't have photocopiers and they didn't have the internet, they didn't have personal computing and they didn't have video cameras. It was an oral society mostly and the very well-educated people actually were the ones that were able to write. And it doesn't mean, you don't want to default straight away to an oral society meaning that we're playing Chinese whispers and within 30 seconds the things get, get blown out of proportion. I mean I don't have time to go into it now but um, if you were starting a false religion about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, the dumbest place to do it would be the place where he got killed. Why would that be the dumbest place to do it? Because that's where all the eyewitnesses are. Like if you want to go out and start talking about something that happened in, contemporary, in the contemporary world then, and there's all these eyewitnesses around, they can just squash it. Now, who's, uh, has anyone here ever heard of the Gnostic Gospels? Have you heard of them? Gnosticism was some kind of sect uh, that saw matter as evil um, and so only spirit can kind of be redeemed. They kind of maintained that Jesus didn't have a real physical body, body but only seemed to be human. And it wasn't that long ago that um, one of the more recent Gnostic Gospels was actually discovered. I don't know whether you remember. It was about 2006. Um, someone, they had the, the Gospel of Judas sitting somewhere and corrupting and disintegrating and someone found it and decided to uh, translate it. Um, now, it's, a, it's an interesting read. I would actually encourage you to go and have a read of it. And I think it would actually be really helpful for you because these, some of these Gospels by competing kind of scholars to Christianity, they, they, the, the scholars would kind of say that this is some history that we really need to pay attention to. But if you actually go and read the Gospel of Judas, 
you will notice that it has a completely different flavour to Matthew, Mark and Luke in particular, okay? Like the, if you read, for example, the Gospel of uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark has got a very um, simple, clear, eyewitness kind of feel about it. I'll give you an example of it. Uh, in Mark 4, it talks about the dis- disciples in the boat in the middle of a storm. And do you know that in Mark's um, uh, rendition of that story, he says Jesus was asleep at, at the stern of the boat, I think, with his head on a cushion. Now, having his head on a cushion has nothing to do with the point that Mark's actually telling about or trying to, trying to teach people about. But that is characteristic of eyewitness accounts. These people in eyewitness accounts, and you, you probably have heard this before, they remember random details that get included in their story that don't have anything to do with what they're actually trying to say. Are you with me? And that's actually what you find. So what, when I taught at the school here, we, um, when this first came out back in 2006, I got one of my Christian studies classes together and we just all read through the Gospel of Judas together. And do you know what happens in the Gospel of Judas? Is the Gospel of Judas is not written by Judas. They know it was written after Judas. So it was written about Judas, not by Judas. And basically the big idea behind the Gospel of Judas is everyone's got Judas wrong and he was actually the hero because he had this secret conversation with Jesus and Jesus and him cooked up this deal that he needed to die to save the world so Judas offered to be the guy who would betray him to make that happen. And so he ends up coming out as the hero. Interestingly, uh, the church father Irenaeus outed the, uh, the Gospel of Judas like in the first couple of centuries You've got all these other kind of Gnostic Gospels like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, but they're all, they've all got late kind of datings and they seem to be coming out of this Gnostic kind of uh, sect. So all of that to say that if you do have time, you can't get it online anymore. National Geo used to uh, offer the translation free when it first came out, but you have to buy the book now. Um, but if you had time to actually read it and you could get access to it and make a comparison between it and the, the Gospels that we have, you'll see what I'm talking about, that it's a, a very different kind of style uh, to what we've got. So we've got the best eyewitness accounts. We've got the closest eyewitness accounts. The question then becomes, like, how do we know that we've actually got close to what the original writers originally wrote? And I want to put a a table up here on the screen and it's a little bit dated and you just need to know that there's stuff happening all the time in terms of uh, finding more um, scrolls and documents to kind of reinforce stuff. Uh, If you love the King James Version, uh, bless you, all right, you are multilingual probably. Um, But people who are like dead set just love the King James Version. It's like that's the true translation. We have so much more documentary evidence to help us understand what the New Testament's about uh, than what we had back then when the King James Version was originally translated. So you can have even more confidence about what we've got in the Scriptures than um, back then. So here's, you probably can't even see that. Can you see that? So you should all sit down the front. Um... I'll put it online, but basically this is a table that shows the comparison between the number of manuscripts that we've got of the New Testament compared to manuscripts that we've got of other ancient texts. 
So the classic example is Homer's Iliad, which is the one up the top. It was written in 800 BC. The earliest copies we've got of it are 400 BC. There's a time gap between composition and the first copy of four centuries. And the, this is the one that we've got the most copies of. We've got 643 copies. If you go down to the bottom to the New Testament, the New Testament was written in 50 to 100 AD. The earliest copies we've got, it looks like we've got a copy that's from 114 AD. We've, and that's not a full copy, that's a fragment. Okay? The time gap between when it was written and the copy that we've got is 50 years up to maybe 200 years and we've got 5,366 pieces of manuscripts or manuscripts or copies. Does that make sense? So I could go through the whole table. This has changed, right? Because they're, they're finding stuff all the time. So the way, that, the way that it kind of works over there, and I'll do a little bit of violence to it, is basically a, a conquering um, country kind of comes in, they kind of beat them, they smash their town down, and then they build on top of it. And so over there you have these layers of civilization. As they dig down, they find more stuff that's actually going on. But here's the bottom line. The documentary evidence that we've got for the scriptures is way, way, way more than pretty much any other document in antiquity. Because the thing that we're not including down here in the 5,366 is we're not, we're not including other translations in other languages. As soon as you do that, it gets up to about 25,000 um, copies or fragments of, uh, of manuscripts. Ravi Zacharias says this, in real terms, the New Testament is easily the best attested ancient writing in terms of the sheer number of documents, the time span between the events and the document and the variety of documents available both to sustain or contradict it. There is nothing in ancient manuscript evidence to match such textual availability and integrity. So that just means that you can have confidence that what's being passed on is the truth. And I don't I don't have time to go into textual criticism, right? But, yeah, I don't have time to go into it. We don't have any of the originals, which is not unusual. Because how many originals are there normally? Like one, right? So if you don't have the originals, one of the things that you can do to actually work out and to get back to the original is make comparisons between the copies that you've got. And the less copies you've got, the more significant any kind of variations are in the copies. But if you've got lots of copies, you can actually see more, you've got more evidence to work with and more resources to work with in terms of getting back to what the original text was. Now, the, the variations are not significant. Like sometimes a lot of variations are like a different spelling or a different punctuation. Because what you've got is you, you don't have a photocopier, you don't have a laser printer, you've got people, educated people who have to copy it. And anyone who's even written a 5,000 word essay and tried to do the referencing on it without using a program knows it's really difficult to get everything exactly right about everything. But you just need to know that, I think, I think scholars say we've got 99.5% pure, we're really sure about what was in the originals in the Bible that we've actually got all right I'm going to fly through the last little bit and then we'll have a break and uh, you can can throw a few questions my way or do it as we go 
this, uh, this one here I think is probably one of the best um, evidences around is we've actually, if you look through the New Testament, there's creeds. Now, why do you think creeds are important? Anyone like to have a punt at that? I'll give you a chance. This is audience participation time. Why is, why is everyone, everyone gets a lolly? Why do you reckon, I, just, I mentioned something to do with it just before. Yeah, they're oral summaries of truth. Okay, remember it's predominantly an oral society, so they're actually going to use mnemonic devices, like memory devices, by writing creeds up that you can easily remember what's true. Now, this is one out of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. Listen to what Paul says. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're not up for the Christian thing, well, that's cool, right? This is kind of a knockdown, drag them out creed, I reckon. Like, if you can kind of say this is pretty close to the time that it actually happened and we can actually trace the origin of this creed right back to the right in the middle of the eyewitnesses and everyone who saw this stuff and it's appealing to a bunch of eyewitnesses. What's it saying? It's saying Jesus died, he was resurrected. It's, it's like at some point I just go, okay, you got me. <laughs> if you can nail this one, you got me on this one. Well, listen to Gary Habermas and what he says about it. It's a lot of text up there, but I'll read it out. Dating Jesus' crucifixion around AD 30, Paul's conversion would have occurred shortly afterwards, about AD 33 to 35. Listen to this. It's like three to five years after Jesus died on the cross. Three years after his conversion, 36 to 38 AD, he visited Jerusalem and specifically met with Peter and James. We know that from Galatians 1. It is therefore reason that the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus would in all likelihood be the normal centre of discussion and that the presence of both Peter and James in the list of appearances indicates the probability that Paul received this creed from these apostles when he visited them in Jerusalem. A Jerusalem location would date Paul's reception of this creed to about five to seven years after the crucifixion. Like you're doing the mass? Like five to seven years after the crucifixion, it looks like maybe Paul got this creed. Now, if, you, if you're using your logic, you're probably going, okay, so if he gets it about five to seven years after Jesus, that means that it was started before that. As far as we know, it wasn't Paul that it started with. It's like he received something that was already going. So it's entirely possible... And it's a good argument, I think, that this particular creed was probably in circulation three to five years orally after Jesus died on the cross. That just isn't enough time for legend to develop. And you've still got just about all of the eyewitnesses that are still kicking around and they can just shut stuff down. And why would you do that in Jerusalem if he never was raised from the dead and he was never crucified? Is it, you with me? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. It makes the most sense that this creed kind of fired up around about three to five years after Jesus was crucified and was raised from the dead. And I kind of think, man, that's, that's a pretty good argument, that one. 
All right, let me dip your toe in the water of a couple of other things. Um, Archaeology has been really helpful uh, with biblical things. Uh, Most of the ancient cities mentioned in the book of Acts have been identified. So in Acts, Luke talks about 32 countries, 54 cities and nine islands completely without error in any of them, all right? Uh, the book of uh, Romans 16, verse 23, there's a dude called Erastus. You can name your kid that because it's a cool name. Uh, he was a city treasurer and he was obviously a Christian at the time and they found his name inscribed on a pavement in excavations in 1929. For years they thought that the pool of Bethesda where Jesus went up and healed the cripple that um, was crippled for uh, 38 years, they thought it didn't even exist. Well, in 1888, they found it in the course of excavations near the church of St. Anne. This is a reasonably regular thing with the Bible is that opponents kind of say, it's not all the time because there's still, there's genuine biblical difficulties with archaeology, but there's a real flow of opponents saying, look, this didn't really happen, the Bible's wrong, and then 20 years later or 50 years later, they find something that, um, that kind of changes the way they look at history a bit. They found the pool of Bethesda, cover that one. Check, this is really exciting, this next bit, all right? And you've got to be careful not to overreach it. But on the 22nd of February, only a few months ago, they, um, in the Biblical Archaeology Review, which is a peer-reviewed archaeology magazine of, of quite high standing, and I understand it's, um, it's not actually run by uh, Christians per se. I think it's got more of a Jewish kind of, uh, kind of vibe going on to it. What was published in, the, uh, in this journal back in February is that a, that a lady in her excavations near the Temple Mount actually found a seal that there's a good chance belonged to the prophet Isaiah. All right? Now, they don't know for sure. Let me, let me show you. You can do a Google search on this. All right? Now, some of the writing's obscured, so they don't know whether it's just Isaiah some guy or Isaiah the prophet it could actually be Isaiah the prophet but they, they don't have the end of the the uh, the word for prophet there and I'm, I'm just going way out of my depth in terms of Old Testament writing but you get the point here um, there's stuff that's kind of happening all the time now interestingly in a, in a similar location to that back in 2015 they found uh, a seal of King Hezekiah who's in the Bible now if you know your stuff about Hezekiah you know that Hezekiah um, Isaiah was a key kind of spiritual advisor to King Hezekiah. So in a similar kind of location, you've got a seal that they know to be King Hezekiah and one that could be Isaiah the prophet. Now, the other thing that you may not know is that um, there has been a lot of debate about Isaiah over the years. And people have criticised Isaiah. They said the book of Isaiah is, uh, has been written by multiple people and not necessarily by Isaiah himself. There's been kind of a cloud of uncertainty about whether Isaiah even existed. And then 2018, we at least know that there's someone who lived around about that time whose name was Isaiah. Like that's the least that we could say at this point. And there's a fair chance, and this Jewish archaeologist says there's a fair chance that this is actually the seal of Isaiah the prophet. All right. Doing okay? Bit of a uh, 
bit of a drink from a fire hydrant today. So um, let, me, um, let me finish with two things quickly. Here they are. I think all of this evidence leaves you in a place, um, and this was popularised by um, C.S. Lewis, it leaves you in a place where you've got to work out what you're going to do with Jesus. Now, whether you love Jesus and you're a Christian here today or you're not, you just have to work out what you're going to do with Jesus because the evidence is actually really, really strong. In fact, almost every world religion tries to find a slot for Jesus. I mean, if you read the Gospel of Mark, and I'd encourage you to do that, Jesus is always pressing people. It's it's like, what are you going to do with me? What are you personally going to do with me? He's always kind of pressing into your space. And C.S. Lewis kind of popularised this trilemma. Um, And the trilemma is this. When you look at the evidence for Jesus, you're only really left with three options. You can't even really say he's a nice guy. You have to either say... He's a lunatic, like he is just stark raving mad and he hasn't got a clue what's going on. He's a liar. And if he's a liar, he's probably a lunatic as well. All right, because he's going to lie about something and then be crucified on a Roman cross for it. Or he's divine, he's Lord. He's a boss man, he's the one in charge. Those are kind of your options. Lunatic. Like he's absolutely crazy and you've got to be, you be the judge. Like does he sound like a crazy, a crazy man? He's a liar. It's like a dumb liar. <laughs> Praise Lord. A quick word to uh, people who are, um, are Christians. Um, I have read a lot about this stuff and I've uh, thought deeply about this stuff over a long period of time and it's actually been because I've had a whole lot of doubts about this sort of stuff. And I think some of it comes from the fact that I grew up in a Christian home and uh, I just have been needing to battle my way out of thinking that this whole thing's a stitch up, you know, and that it's a whole, it's a G up and... So all the doubts have kind of come into my mind and I've had to read and actually work this stuff through for myself. And I want to just tell you something that I have discovered and it was just um, really crystallised when I was reading some stuff by John Piper about, um, about the Bible. And he made this comment. He said, certainty doesn't come from the accumulation of information, it comes from relationship. And he used the metaphor. He said that, he said, if I... I'm suspicious that my wife is being unfaithful to me. He said, what I could do is I could hire a private investigator and this private investigator could actually watch her every move and that would be spooky, right? But he could watch or she could watch his wife's every move to find out whether she was being faithful and gather information for him. But he said, even if a private investigator did that, I would still be left with the question as to how faithful she was being on the inside in a place that the private investigator couldn't actually see. And he made the point, he said that if you want certainty, if you want certainty about the faithfulness of his wife, he needs to be in relationship with his wife. And the bottom line is, if you want certainty about truth, 
and like you are absolutely doggedly determined to accumulate more and more and more and more information to be certain about it, I just want to say to you this morning, it is a futile quest because you will never get enough information to be certain. Because it's not how it works. That's not how knowledge works for you in any sphere in this world. It just doesn't work that way. None of you have got exhaustive knowledge of how a car is made. <laughs> you just don't. Like you've got partial knowledge. You might know how to drive it until you get in one that's got a push button thing. And you're just going, I mean, we just got a new car and it's got a push button thing. And I pull up in the garage, it's got ice top on it and it turns off. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, what do I do now? Do I turn it off or do I... Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And then you, I just go, no, I'm not going to turn it off because I'll, I'll, uh, it's off and I'll take my foot off the brake and then it starts up and then I've got to turn it off. It's my wife's car. I drive, I drive Altec uh, Nissan Patrol most of the time. So you, you don't have that kind of information. You don't have all the detailed information about that and you actually don't have that kind of detailed information about anything in your life. And some of you are going, oh, I'm getting anxious now. But see, certainty doesn't actually come from knowing all the information as much as news feeds would want to tell you that. Certainty actually comes from relationship and knowing someone's character. So you don't, you don't actually find out that much about God's character in the Bible. It seems like a lot. The question is, what have you found out about his character? Is he someone that's trustworthy? Is he someone that you can trust with the questions that don't have an answer because they're there and you only kind of find that kind of certainty in the context of relationships